I can't make the case that there's a funny story to this review, but I mean, I don't think there's really anything funny about me doing a Rob Ager impression. That's right. I was intentionally going to do the review on a sh on The Shining with a Rob Ager impression, and obviously any anybody who is a Kubrick fan or just frequents YouTube film reviews has probably heard of Rob Ager of collect collect of learning. That's the closest I'll give to impersonation of him. Terrible as it is. Even though I was actually intending to do the whole of this review with that impersonation, I mean, as much as it would have been a, a flexible attempt at, well, flexing my creative impersonation muscles, I decided just to be honest about how full of shit that would have made me. Because one thing, it would be disrespectful to draw a beggar because I don't even know what the fuck kind of act. I mean, I'm sorry if that sounded kind of racy. Jesus, I don't know what kind of accent that is. I think it's Welsh. I'm not entirely sure. I'm really bad with certain accents. Either way, I did want to talk about, though, the, the reason I really decided to change my mind last minute about that was because it would also be insulting to the nature of Stanley Kubrick and what his films represent. Because I always feel that in addition to the intellectual depth that his films go, there's a confrontational aspect that they all share. Because obviously, when if you were to, if Stanley Kubrick was a lot was alive today, which would be interesting, because I wonder how he would, how he would look at the current cultural climate we're living in. I mean, God knows what he would say about cancel culture. I mean, fuck. I have I just have ideas of how, how George Carlin or Bill Hicks would look at the world of today, and not. I mean, they couldn't resist being cynical. And that was before the whole cancel culture phenomenon, before this massive technological rise we've had with, with uh, smartphone technology where everybody's glued to their phones 99% of the day. In either case, when it comes to Stanley Kubrick and the confrontational aspect of his movies, one thing I tend to admire about them is that they get you to reflect on so many things that we often dismiss, but they're right there in front of us. And I think The Shining is the perfect example. To me, The Shining is very much, I mean, as to whether I think it's, is it a masterpiece? Oh, yes, it is, in my view. <clears throat> I say the same thing about Eyes Wide Shut. I say the same, I mean, I think I'd have to see Full Metal Jacket one more time to be more decisive on that matter, but... I think there's a great chance of that happening either way. About his earlier works, I've only seen films like Fear and Desire. Oh, that's a plane outside flying. I don't know what kind of models, but uh, Fear and Desire, The Killing, and I haven't seen Spartacus, so I can't make a judgment. I haven't seen Lolita. But his earlier works, um, I wouldn't know if I would call them masterpieces, just so much as just ex great executions of fantastic filmmaking even in an early stage of the filmmaker and the same goes for I mean I think 2001 having seen it only once it is a masterpiece in its experimental aspect I haven't seen or I mentioned I haven't seen Lolita Clockwork Orange definitely a masterpiece in my view and much like The Shining it is asking you deep intellectual confrontational questions when it comes to The Shining, and I would like to talk about it, but when it comes to The Shining, I mean, I always saw something deeply profound about it, but I think after watching Room 237, it gave me a greater insight of how to view it every time I watched it. Obviously, 
uh, like many people, I mean, the theory of the Native American Holocaust is definitely present within the film, and it's mentioned in Room 237, and that was actually the view I held back when I first, I mean, in my first few viewings of The Shining, that this was primarily what Stanley Kubrick was talking about, but I don't really think that was his intention. In fact, when watching Room 237, they had a multitude of theories. I mean, the not about it, even the German, I mean, the Jewish Holocaust, the moon landing, or even the issue of domestic violence. And there's actually a YouTube channel called Super Eye Patch Wolf, and I'll put a link down below to the, his own personal review of The Shining, and what what he felt about it. But I think the, I mean, the only theory I think is really dismissive is the moon landing one because I just, I mean, I'm sure that Stanley Kubrick felt annoyed by it that he put hints in the movie to say fuck you to the critics just like there's actually a theory about uh that one moment in the shining when that red sedan i think that was a, a sedan or suv is flipped upside down because that's the car from the book the stephen king novel which he obviously adapted this movie from but drastically changed to the point of pissing off stephen king there was a rumor that that moment in the film when you see Scatman Crothers' character Dick Holleran driving through the snow and you see that flipped over sedan which is from the book but it's not as the main car of Jack Torrance in the film it's like a personal fuck you from Stanley Kubrick to Stephen King I don't know what kind of relationship they had I know that Stephen King did not like The Shining and that he personally decided to remake it into a television series, which I heard didn't necessarily do very well. I've never seen it. I saw like a snippet of it once from from somebody doing a review of the film, and it kind of looked absurd. I mean, I liked, I read The Shining a long, long time ago, and I enjoyed it thoroughly. I enjoyed many aspects of it. I found some things like the hedge animals stuff kind of ridiculous. Not to say that Stephen King, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to criticize Stephen King. He's a fantastic writer, and I think one of the, I mean, in addition to his fictional work, I think his nonfiction book on writing is fucking incredible, and I highly recommend everybody who is a writer, who just is a fan of Stephen King, check it the fuck out. And I'll even put a link down below to that, too, because I incur, I, I mean, one thing I love about talking about this podcast and just talking about movies overall is it allows me just to just to encourage intellectual curiosity and that's always something that's given me the intellectual heart on that just makes me want to just express my love for movies I mean I'd love talking to filmmakers as well but and, and it just gives me a better idea to understand why I love this art so much and when it comes to The Shining specifically what the reason I enjoy it so much especially after watching Room 237 a few years ago is that it introduces me at looking at it in a much wider scope because obviously violence and discomfort are our major elements within The Shining and whether you're thinking about the Native American Holocaust, the Jewish Holocaust, the domestic violence angle, there's always something confrontational about those elements because I think I, in my last discussion with a filmmaker, Jerome, we talked about the desensitized state that humanity has gravitated towards, especially within a culture that's just drenched in violence. And even my last, in another interview, previous interview with uh, this other filmmaker, Mark Stafford, we talked about how at one, like, there's always going to be something happening that's going to capture humanity's attention, some violent atrocity or some conflict 
that garners our attention for a momentary amount of time, but then we just move on. And I mean, and that's if we focus on it. I mean, there are loads of things happening in the current state of the world that we're probably not aware of. And even if we did get some hint of it, we would probably give some measure of attention to it and then just move on. I mean, take for instance the war in Russia and Ukraine. I mean, in the beginning, a lot of people were super patriotic, standing by the people of Ukraine. I have no side to take on that matter because one, I think when it comes to these geopolitical matters, they are far too complex. But I did agree with both Mark and Jerome in talking about how people just move on. There's always just going to be a conflict and eventually humanity just moves on. I mean, I guess even with this goes back to the the old line from Joseph Stalin when he said that one death is a tragedy, a million deaths is simply a statistic. And I mean, as horrible as it is to find some truth and was uh, some truth and maybe even wisdom in the words of monsters, it's it's very. I guess that's the reason they're more remembered than the average Joe, who's just clocking in from the nine to five. I, mean, I don't know. I look at it like I look at the shining in that sense because with all the made with all the potential major elements of violence, it does make you wonder how humanity is able to move on for these kind of events. And the domestic violence angle with Jack, within Jack Torrance's family is the perfect hint of this. In the beginning, after Danny Lloyd's character, Danny Torrance, has that episode where he blacks out and sees those, and after seeing all those horrific visions of things to come because of his shining abilities, after the psychiatrist asks his his mother, played by Shelley Duvall, Wendy, about the injury that she mentions, she describes the incident, but in such a carefree, housewifey kind of way, like, oh, it was just something that happened. My husband was drunk. He pulled my son so hard that he just dislocated his shoulder. It's just one of those things. And, I mean, that's not an uncommon phenomenon because domestic violence is something that happens frequently and people and people in those families, they just move on and just let it slide. I mean, plenty of parents argue and sometimes parents actually abuse one, one or both parents Usually it's just one parent that abuses the, abuses the child, and the other one is either neglectful of it or they make excuses for it. It's basically like like when a, like a, like as a, and a perfect example would be like a father who constantly berates his, his son or daughter, and and, set, and the mother comes to their defense, but to a very limited degree. And even when that that abuse becomes physical, they they only come to their defense in a very in a very limited degree that but they don't divorce them like they should it's basically they just move on thinking that they can maintain some sense of balance and i think that's something that stanley kubrick's the shining forces us to confront that there is no running away from the lack of order that defines the state of the world i mean the shining is obviously i mean the the, what the, the nature of the shining is it's like a, a, obviously a magical power that certain individuals have but I think when you look at it more closely they all go it, uh, you just think about what Dick, Dick Holler and Scatman Crothers' character says about how everybody shines some people shine like other people and I, I always interpreted the shining powers like an, a sense of, of consciousness not, not consciousness more like it a sense of intuitiveness that we all have when we're younger. I mean, 
I think, I don't know how to put it, I think that when we're children, we're much freer, we're less rational, but we're also more in tune with nature to a point where we're less afraid and less constrained, and we have a, I guess you could say we're more, not spiritual, just more, God, I, I'm really, I'm really stretching here, but we're just more in line with nature in a sense where we're not afraid of it where we can feel things that we can't necessarily feel once we gravitate towards a much older age where we feel that we've adopted a more rationalized manner of looking at the world. I guess that makes sense. I mean, some people have theorized that even Jack Torrance has some shining abilities. But again, this is all just speculation, and that's all you're going to get when you're looking at a Stanley Kubrick movie, especially one as ambiguous as The Shining, and one that diverted from the novel source material. Because I look at the, sh I mean, I look at The Shining in the in the movie and the book as two totally different stories. Yeah, in a sense, I mean, I'd, I mean, Doctor Sleep is definitely more ingrained towards being a sequel to both the book, but and the movie no in the spirit of the book but definitely and the Stephen King verse but definitely a sequel to The Shining because obviously that's much more convenient and much just more traditional in that sense I don't know if I'll ever do a review on Doctor Sleep I've only seen it a few times it was a much better sequel than I expected very well made and something that I would definitely like to revisit because I do like how it took its time but then again I didn't see the theatrical version, I saw the director's cut, and when it comes to director's cuts, I'll choose that any day over the theatrical cut, because if a theatrical cut is mandated by a studio, then that's not the true, to me, that's not the true vision of the director. I mean, Christopher Nolan can't make that case, because I've heard rumors he doesn't like, he's not a big fan of deleted scenes, so whenever he presents a film, you get the full extent of what he was aiming for. But going back to The Shining, all those in... I guess when you look at the confrontational aspects of it and all those instances of violence, all Stanley Kubrick is just basically asking you to do is just to look closely and not walk away from it because there's, just, I mean, I guess you could, I mean, there's like a, I guess this all goes back to what Shakespeare said about the world being a stage and we're all merely players and how that means that in a way we're all performing or playing some role rather than being honest with ourselves to a certain extent, and I, I, I even sense this in the very beginning of The Shining when, I mean, the, that, that, uh, that track, that, uh, that track shot in the beginning of the landscape of Colorado is beautiful and yet horrifying, hauntingly hypnotic, because it tells you, it's obviously inviting you to look closely, and yet when you watch Jack Torrance's interview at the Overlook Hotel, which I'll talk about in a minute because of the nature of the Overlook Hotel itself. Jack Torrance is definitely, you can tell the, the overzealous charm he's showing to the guy, uh, what's the, what's the manager of the hotel's name? Shit. I forgot his name, but it's irrelevant. Basically, it's all performative. It's all show, and it's not like like so superficial. It's very formal in a polite way, where people just normally talk to each other. But you get obviously if you if you compare that to the tone of the film and what it's inviting you to do and look closely at the much deeper subject matter, 
you automatically sense that that's something you see and something we tend to overlook. Hence, no pun intended when talking about the Overlook Hotel. But you couldn't have picked a better name for a hotel for a haunted hotel that encapsulates the idea of confronting the very violent elements within a narrative like The Shining, because essentially The Shining, the core of it is the subject of violence and how humanity tends to overlook so much violence that it goes back to my own my own prior discussions of the desensitization aspect because we live in a current cultural climate where even if it's not real violence like simulated violence like from television movies or just all elements of pop culture it's only increased in quantity and we've had greater and we've also gained a greater access to actual violence through technology to the point where it's desensitized us where nowadays hearing about a random shooting is just the norm of the day i mean the fact that whenever i, I mean i i think I, I learned this on a joe rogan episode about how or no the patrick bet david podcast i learned about how this year alone there have been more than 200 mass shootings i mean in just within six nearly seven months of no six months of this year there have been there have been 200 shootings. That is just fucked up. But yet, the world goes on. America goes on. And I'm not saying that there isn't some level of civil unrest in the United States, but it's mostly tied to inflation, gas prices, and the rising cost of living. But, at the, but just looking at that statistical angle of violence and how we just, it, we've just learned to live with it, when it would have been much, a much bigger issue to hear about that several decades ago. That's very alarming, but again, desensitization is part of the, the massive increase of either real or simulated violence. And this even goes to the rate, the way film, this even relates to film in many ways, because I think in one of my own, in a prior interview, I don't remember which one, we talked about the rating system, or I've just mentioned this to friends. The rating system for films used to be just two categories, PG and R, yet it's gravitated into a load of pointless categories that just don't make any fucking sense. And yet, and yet there are factors that affect these ratings to a degree where it even grants it greater absurdity, where, I mean, uh, even so much as a pubic hair or, or the degree of authenticity within a sex scene can affect whether a film will get a PG-13 or rated R or even an NC-17 rating. And it's, and it's rare for a film to be rated NC-17, and yet those kind of sex scenes like a pubic, seeing a pubic hair or seeing some form of cunnilingus will affect the way the film is rated, yet John Wick can brutally murder 80 people within the span of 20 minutes in the most brutal fashion, yet it'll still get, I guess you could say it's a safe R because nowadays, but then again, the fact that I'm calling uh, an R rating for film safe tells you how desensitized we become that we're no longer horrified by it. I mean, when I I mean, the first rated R film I saw when I was a kid was David O. Russell's Free Kings, and I was eight years old. And that fucked me up. Well, I wouldn't say it fucked me up. I mean, it weirded me the fuck out seeing some dude head popped out, popping out of his, out of his, popping off his neck and a geyser of blood shooting away. And I understand it's a dark comedy, but for an eight-year-old to see that, I mean, that... Who knows how anybody, how any other eight-year-old would respond? And I think that The Shining, in many ways, 
is about is I mean in many ways predicted this desensitization. I mean the fact that we overlook all these forms of violence and the way they affect us is very telling about us as a species. I mean I'm not saying that Stanley Kubrick is saying human beings are inherently evil or that we're but he is just he's just inviting us in many ways to look at the complexities that make us up in such contradictory fact, fashions. I mean I guess this even goes back to the old Bukowski quote, uh, not the Bukowski poem, The Genius of the Crowd, and there's a line in that poem where he says, those who preach against murder are the best at it, and obviously those who preach peace are the worst of it, something like that. It's basically illustrating the hypocrisy. It's ba I mean, a perfect example of some religious preacher being caught in some sex scandal despite promoting abstinence or uh, or monogamy, and yet he's caught cheating on his wife with two hookers and a boatload of cocaine. I mean, and I guess that's that type of hypocrisy that you can you can see deconstructed within a Stanley Kubrick film. In many instances, in this case, it's the act the subject of violence, and The Shining does that. As to my personal view as to what The Shining is about, I think it's just about looking as closely as possible, Don't not lying to yourself. It's a story about violence and how it's more... It look, looking away from it doesn't alleviate it. It doesn't eradicate the existence of it, but confronting it and moving on from it is important. And I feel that there's some element of that within Dr. Sleep except more in terms of moving on from the trauma that violence has left you with. That, anyway, that's my take on The Shining. I think it is one of Stanley Kubrick's greatest films. It's very hard for me which, to say which is one of my favorite Stanley Kubrick movie because, I mean, I could probably cheat my way out of this by saying my top five Stanley Kubrick movies or my top three Stanley Kubrick movies being Clockwork Orange, The Shining, and Eyes Wide Shut which in many ways border on the element of confrontation, not just in regards to violence, but just to the performative aspects of the human being. Again, this is all just speculation, but I guess those are the best films, the best types of films that people that people who truly love cinema should engage in, because, the, I mean, I mean, I'm not saying you should be so skeptical you can't, you can become so indecisive and that you're pretty much just neurotic. I think that you should that just the specul the speculative element of these narratives allows you to think more critically and just approach similar subject matter to a certain extent. Like a, I guess a, a final example I use is the ending of the Dark Knight. At first, when I was like a 17 years old, and I saw the Dark Knight. Obviously, there is something there was something heroic about the sacrifice Batman made at the end of the Dark Knight to tell a lie to hold society together, but. It, when you look at it more closely, you still have to look at the fact that he's making decisions for people without allowing them to decide for themselves, which contradicts the fact that he, no contradicts the faith he had during the classic boat scene where where he truly relied on the people to make the right decision. Yet at the end of the Dark Knight, after Harvey Dent dies, he basically tells a lie to whole society together. He behaves like an authoritarian. Now, I'm not condem I don't want to condone or condemn that decision because I don't know what it would be like in that moment, especially when the stakes were very high and yeah, I mean, it was just a bad situation and it wasn't a malicious one. It was not like him doing it for the sake of power because there are plenty of people 
especially in high political office, who if they were faced with a similar situation, they would basically just do it for the power grab. And obviously, if you've seen The Dark Knight Rises and you see what the Dent Act did, it's basically Nolan's version of the Patriot Act. It doesn't make any sense, but sure, shit gives people within the intelligence or law enforcement department a shitload of power and very little room for it to be eradicated or, or dealt with in a balanced way. And I'm not saying, and I don't, I mean, I guess over time, despite my own pessimism towards politics, I've gained a greater sympathy for some politicians because even the ones who make choices that border on some authoritarian measures, I understand their job sucks. I mean, I don't know why the fuck they have it. So many people have not realized that just getting into that kind of job sucks. But then again, I'm not someone who would ever run for political office. I have zero interest in that because I just feel it's like you're just fucking yourself over. Anyway, I hope you all enjoyed this review for my my for my thoughts on the on Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. I don't know if I will ever do a review on Doctor Sleep. I hope you check out the crypto links I left down below, as well as links to my sponsors such as Fountain which obviously I've mentioned in previous episodes, not only allows you to listen to your favorite podcast creators and stream Satoshis to either comments or clips of their podcast episodes, but you can even earn increments of Bitcoin, as I mentioned, which are Satoshis just by listening to that podcast episode. I'll share a link down below. Also, another sponsor of this podcast is Anchor, which is the podcast platform I use to distribute this podcast against multiple platforms like Apple, Spotify, Fountain, CurioCaster, Breeze, Lisbon, whatever gets you, floats your boat. And I've recently signed up for another affiliate known as Podmatch, which basically, if you're a podcast creator, if you sign up with Podmatch, for like a, I guess you can get a special deal of $6 a month. You pretty much can set up interviews with people for guests that relate to whatever you're working on as a pod uh, as a podcaster, and Podmatch will actually pay you for every guest you're able to book, which is a pretty good deal. I mean, why shouldn't you be paid for for working on your podcast? It's an act of creativity. And I think all creative all creative ventures should be financially rewarded because let's face it, working a regular job is fucking bullshit and it's boring, and even contract work for jobs that just don't make sense or just have no creative flair to it is fucking bullshit on its own level and one thing about about this podcast in addition to having discussions of creative people is that it kind of just unveils a lot of the bullshit that people just live under and it i love the unscripted aspect of it where i can just talk like a fucking human being rather than some idiot reading from a teleprompter or some scripty typed up just to make this sound more formal, professional, and uh, and glitzy, and I'm not into that shit. But anyway, uh, check out the links, check out the sponsors, support this podcast, share it with your friends, your family, your dog, if you if if that's if that's what floats their boat. Till next time. <laughs>